You are listening to Cyber Law Monitor, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now, let's get started with your host, Andrew Baer. Hello, and welcome to Cyber Law Monitor. I'm your host, Andy Baer, and today we're going to talk about the five, count them, five new comprehensive state privacy laws coming into effect in 2023 and how businesses can get ready for them. My guest today is Benjamin Mishkin of Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Group. How are you today, Ben? I'm doing just fine. Thanks, Andy. We're very uh, grateful that you could join us. So can you tell us a little bit about these new privacy laws and when they go into effect? Yes, absolutely. So we have um, five new state privacy laws going into effect in 2023. Um, One of them in California is an amendment to California's existing law, uh, the California's existing law, the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, is being amended by the California Privacy Rights Act, um, which goes into effect on January 1, 2023, and will make significant changes to California's existing law. Uh, And then we have four states that are going to get brand new consumer privacy laws in 2023. uh, And those states are Virginia, Colorado, Utah, and Connecticut. Um, in Virginia and Colorado, the, those laws are going into effect at the beginning of the new year on January 1, 2023. Um, Connecticut's law goes into effect in the middle of the year on July 1, 2023. And then uh, in Utah, Utah's waiting all the way till the end of the year on December 31, 2023 for their law to go into effect. Um, and just a note, um, on two of those laws, we're going to have implementing regulations. Um, in California, uh, the, the prior law, the CCPA, had implementing regulations, which are now also getting amended. Uh, we have the initial draft of those new CPRA regulations in California, but um, we expect them to change, and we're waiting for final regs. Um, and in Colorado, uh, they've done a notice of proposed rulemaking, but they have not issued regs yet for that law either. So both of those are um, coming down the pipe, and we certainly hope to have them before California and Colorado's laws go into effect on January 1. Thanks, Ben. I'm glad you mentioned these coming regulations in California and Colorado, because I imagine these regulations are going to be very important in helping businesses read the tea leaves, so to speak, and determine what regulators are going to be looking at. I should also note that in California, under the current uh, CCPA, uh, we have some insight from various demands and notices sent out by the California Attorney General under the existing law. And those, uh, those demands and notices have tended to focus on a couple things. Loyalty and reward programs, companies that offer or promote those on their websites but don't seem to have the necessary disclosures about the value of the data that they collect from users and how that aligns with the value being delivered in these loyalty and reward programs. Also, also companies that fail to have uh, do not sell my personal information links and other features and explicit disclosures required by the CCPA. Uh, And Ben, I understand there's been a case brought 
that gives us some further insight as to how California may enforce CCPA. Uh, that's right, Andy. We uh, very recently, um, just in the last couple weeks here, have the first enforcement action in the form of a settlement um, in California. The California Attorney General announced a settlement of an enforcement action against uh, Sephora, the uh, cosmetics retailer, um, and they were in the latter category, Andy, that you just discussed. Um, the enforcement was related to Sephora failing to have proper um, do not sell links and disclosures. Um, and that's because the California Attorney General said that certain uh, online advertising activity that Sephora was engaged in did, in fact, constitute a sale under uh, the CCPA, which um, is broadly defined uh, transfer of data or giving someone access to data for value, any kind of valuable consideration or monetary consideration can be a sale in California. Um, so uh, it, it's an interesting case. Um, it is a little bit of a warning shot for um, the online advertising industry, you know, the, the California Attorney General was specifically looking at cookies that Sephora landed on its users that were then used for retargeting purposes. Um, and, you know, prior to these this enforcement sweep and that enforcement action, I think most companies were pretty comfortable that those kind of relationships were acceptable service providers because those were their advertising service providers that were helping them do online advertising. Um, the California Attorney General said, no, you know, A, you don't have the correct language in your contract with those um, advertising service providers. Um, and B, it looks like perhaps those advertising service providers are using them for a purpose that's not strictly related to their provision of services to you to the extent other folks in the network were able to advertise to these individuals as well. So um, I, this was a sweep. This, there was a many companies, I, I, I take it, that were targeted by the California Attorney General um, related to the same uh, failure in, in, in this online advertising uh, ecosystem. Uh, they all had 30 days to get into compliance. And uh, it appears that Sephora was the only entity that kind of failed to do that for whatever reason. Um, and as a result, they got dinged in a significant amount, um, a significant financial penalty against Sephora for failing um, to uh, cure that deficiency within the 30-day period. They have to pay $1.2 million in fines. It's very interesting and very sobering, Ben. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the necessity of having the uh, service provider language in uh, contracts in order for these third parties to be deemed service providers under CCPA and CPRA. We'll um, turn back to that a little bit later in the in, in the podcast, but it's definitely something to take note of. This is this is an area where having magic language in the contract really does seem to make a difference. I agree. So turning back to these five state laws, Ben, could you take us through briefly some of the common features uh, between these laws and key differences? Absolutely. So uh, it's very interesting um, to talk about some of the common features and some of the key differences between these five state laws. Um, you have California 
is kind of the biggest outlier. California, the CCPA and CPRA are um, significantly different in a number of important respects than the other four state laws. The other four state laws have some differences with one another, but are really quite um, similar to one another. Um, and commentators have really seen that as a trend emerging um, to move away from the more aggressive CCPA, CPRA regime um, in favor of what many have observed appear to be a slightly more business-friendly law uh, under these alternative state privacy laws. So there's a number of important distinctions specifically between those other four laws and CPRA. Um, one of the kind of biggest that um, folks have talked a lot about is the fact that the CCPA, CPRA is the only law of the five laws with a private right of action. Um, so the other four laws, in order to uh, enforce the laws, uh, uh, seek a remedy, you need to have the state attorney general seek, seek that remedy. Um, under CCPA, CPRA, on the other hand, um, in, a certain, in a certain narrow circumstance, individuals can bring a pride of right, private right of action, uh, and that circumstance is a data breach scenario, um, specifically a failure by uh, a covered entity that's covered by the California law to use reasonable information security to safeguard personal data. Um, so in a data breach scenario, you know, you, you do have individual plaintiffs who can bring causes of action, and I think that there has been some action by the plaintiff's bar in California under that private right of action. So that's one of the key differences, um, I think, in, in California versus the other laws. Uh, the, the other major difference um, that's going to be true starting January 1st when CPRA goes into effect, um, the other, the all, all five laws sitting here today, the four laws and other state laws and the CCPA have an exemption for uh, employees' personal information and uh, what is referred to as B2B or business-to-business -business data, uh, in other words, information, personal information that's collected in the, just in the normal course of business, for instance, contact information of companies who are your vendors and business partners um, is exempted under the, the current California law, as, as well as under all four of the other state laws that will go into effect in 2023. But starting on January 1st, the CPRA will change that. Um, the California legislature failed to, they had bills under consideration, but failed to pass them that would have extended the employee and B2B exceptions. So the, the uh, upshot is beginning on January 1st, um, you uh, will have to afford your employees and your B2B uh, business contacts with the same suite of rights that you afford other individuals under the California law. Um, so uh, that's a big one. A lot of, I think a lot of um, companies that didn't have a lot of exposure under CCPA, CPRA um, are, are concerned about this and are, and are scrambling to make sure that they're able to comply starting on January 1st. Um, the, uh, the, the, they have to provide notice to their employees and they have to make sure that they have a framework set up, most importantly, to the extent that they're uh, they have a large physical presence or a large number of employees in California. Ben, I'm glad you spent a couple minutes on that. I, I would agree with you. That's a huge change. Just in my experience, uh, when talking to clients about what 
security and data protection measures to put in place with respect to personal information they share. What I hear a lot is, well, this is employee data um, and or this is B2B data, names, uh, business email addresses and other business contact information. Not to say that employee data isn't isn't important. In fact, uh, under Pennsylvania law, now you have a common law duty to protect, uh, to use reasonable data safeguards to protect uh, sensitive employee data from um, unauthorized access or use. But just in my experience, I've noticed businesses, uh, when talking about privacy, tend to focus solely on consumer information. And I think uh, the FTC and its 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 staff reports and guidelines and enforcement actions have helped concentrate attention on consumer information, as have uh, federal laws like the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. But uh, th- this is going to be a sea change, don't you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely agree, Andy. Um, so we have clients who are reaching out to try to get help specifically because they're realizing that they're going to be you know, not only subject to the California law, but have real compliance obligations that they didn't have up until now because, you know, the nature of their business, they don't collect a great deal of consumer information, but maybe they have hundreds, maybe they have thousands of or tens of thousands of employees in California. Um, so they need to, you know, they really need to pay attention and they need to put a compliance program in place to make sure that they're ready on January 1. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a key difference and something that um, people are going to have to pay attention to. Um, so I could talk a little bit about a, another, you know, uh, uh, important difference and and commonality here between some of these laws. Uh, the threshold for these laws, um, the uh, the commonality across all five states is there are thresholds. So these laws are not applicable to everyone in the world. Um, you have to hit the thresholds in order to be subject to them. Um, there are significant differences in terms of exactly what those thresholds are. But unlike, uh, I think most importantly, Europe's GDPR, which doesn't really have any threshold other than you're doing business and you're directing business intentionally towards Europe or your brick and mortar business is located in Europe, um, you're subject to GDPR even if you're only collecting a handful of individuals' information. doesn't matter how much money you're making. Uh, unlike GDPR, all five of these uh, laws in the United States require that you have some combination of uh, dollar amount revenue threshold and um, number of individuals that you collect. And I should say and or number of individuals that you collect. The only state where you can only find yourself subject to the law because of the amount of of revenue that your company makes, and it has to be over $25 million annual gross revenue, is California. If you do business in California and you make $25 million or more annual gross revenue, you are subject to California's law. In the other states, you have to either, I'm sorry, you have to uh, make, make $25 million annual gross revenue and hit 100,000 individuals' information collected uh, in Utah, That's uh, Utah has a unique threshold where both of those things have to be true. You have to hit the dollar amount threshold and the number of individuals threshold. Uh, in the other three states, Colorado, Virginia, and Connecticut, you have to have 100,000 individuals in those states. Um, you have to collect, process the information of 100,000 residents of those states. So the, the upshot there is 
you know, uh, small businesses, you know, especially startups and new businesses will very likely not be subject to these privacy laws until they reach one of those thresholds. Um, so I think that's a very important um, concept that, um, you know, the first, your, your kind of first question is, uh, as I think we're going to talk about in a few minutes, you have to assess your compliance with the law in the first place, and it may be that you don't have to comply. Um, and then the other key um, kind of common feature that I would quickly mention is the suite of rights that data subjects have under these laws are very similar to one another under all five laws. Um, you have the right to know what data a company has collected about you, the fact that they've collected about it, and what types of data they have about you. Uh, in all the states except for Utah, you have a right to correct that data. Uh, you have a right to ask that the company delete your data. Uh, and you have a right to opt out of sales of your data. Um, those are common features across all five laws. The way that those uh, rights are enforced um, and the details of what the company's obligations are differ slightly, but you, you, it, it's uh, helpful to think of those as, as core data subject rights across um, all five laws. So uh, those are some of what I see as the key commonalities and differences, Andy, in, in these laws. Thanks for that, Ben. So should I uh, talk a little bit about you know, the big $64,000 question, how should businesses think about preparing for these laws? Yes, please. Um, you know, I think it'd be helpful for us to talk about what strategies businesses might think about employing um, as they're looking now at a three-month timeline for some of these laws um, to go into effect. Uh, what should they be thinking about and what kind of actions could they take uh, to prepare now and in the next few months? I'm happy to. So, as you said, and I'm uh, going to return to this point that you made about five minutes ago, the most important step to prepare is to determine if it's possible to cross certain states off the list. Ben, as you said, California is the only state whose privacy law can apply on the basis of annual revenues alone, $25 million a year under both CCPA and CPRA. As you said, the other four states' privacy laws apply only if a covered entity controls or processes the personal information of at least 100,000 consumers in that state or meets some numerical standard involving sales of personal information. So practically speaking, many small and medium-sized businesses will be exempt. Additionally, all the new privacy laws except California's also categorically exempt financial institutions subject to the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, so many financial services businesses will be spared the headache of multiple state requirements. And thinking about this, it's important to note that when we refer to a financial institution subject to the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, yes, it includes a traditional bank or saving association, but also many other types of entities that significantly engage in financial services. So, for example, a provider of tax preparation software has been held to be covered by Glibba. So even if you are a financial services business uh, subject to Glibba, you will be um, uh, you will be exempt from four of these state laws, everyone's except California's. Still, though, there will be some marketing issues to think about. What I like to say is that a privacy policy or privacy statement is not only a legal document, it's a, mar it's a marketing document as well. It's a statement of values. So even a business that is exempt 
um, from the other four states' privacy laws because of GLIBA, it'll still need to wrestle with this thorny optical issue of whether to publish privacy notices that give greater privacy rights to people from California than to residents from other states. Step number two in preparing for the privacy laws, create a data map. I, I can't emphasize this enough. So these new state laws require companies to provide enhanced privacy disclosures about their data practices and the type of third parties to whom they disclose personal information. They also have to respond to requests to data subjects to exercise their rights in data, whether it's held by the business entities themselves or their service providers, and they have to provide these responses to data subjects within defined timeframes. Covered businesses also have to analyze and document the risks and benefits of certain high-risk data processing activities. So compliance with all this assumes that a company can quickly access information about what types of data it's processing, the sources of that data, the different processing activities performed on the data and the business purposes for which these are performed, where the data is stored, whether it's with a business directly or with a service provider, and which third parties have access to data. So the process of gathering and centralizing all this information is known as data mapping, and it's an essential first step to address the new state privacy requirements. If you've already complied with GDPR, you should already have a pretty good uh, data map. But again, as Ben said earlier, the requirements of these state laws are slightly different from GDPR. Step number three, destroy personal information that you no longer need. So it goes without saying, these new privacy laws apply to personal information that is in a business's possession or control. The business must have this information, this personal information, in order to be subject to new requirements applicable to this information. In my experience, too often companies retain personal information indefinitely, long after any legitimate business, audit, or legal purpose has gone away. Getting rid of unnecessary data simplifies the process of creating a data map that I referred to earlier. It also limits the number of data subject requests a company has to honor. It reduces the retention period disclosure obligations under CPRA, and it also reduces a company's exposure to data breach-related costs and losses. If you don't have the data, it can't be breached, and you don't have to provide notice to individuals or governmental entities or the media regarding that data. Now, if a data set still provides some value, but it's not necessary to associate it with personal identifiers, a company can realize the same benefits by anonymizing the data. And by doing that so that it's no longer identifiable to an individual, again, it's no longer personal information subject to these state privacy laws. Number four, and again, I'm returning to something Ben spoke about earlier, update your service provider contracts. So all of these new all of these new privacy laws impose requirements to contractually limit third parties' usage of personal information that they receive in the course of providing services to covered businesses. And CPRA has particularly detailed requirements about what have to be in a service provider contract for that third party to be deemed a service provider. So as I said, under CPRA and its draft regulations, these requirements are especially rigorous. And if you fail to include the necessary contract language, that could re result in a transfer of personal information to service providers being deemed to be a sale, which would necessitate providing an opt-out right and other requirements. 
So for all these reasons, businesses that utilize service providers, and all businesses do, such as cloud service providers, outsourcing companies, web hosts, all companies that utilize service providers to process personal information on their behalf should consider adding a European data processing agreement or addendum, what we call a DPA in the industry. They should consider adding that to their service contracts. And this DPA should contain all the necessary contractual restrictions and also require the service provider to honor requests from data subjects, such as for the deletion of data, and follow the covered businesses directives to assist it to honor those data subject requests. And an increasing best practice that I'm seeing is um, now that you're essentially uh, de facto, if not de jure, required to have a DPA under these new state privacy laws, more and more businesses are um, amalgamating their compliance obligations for both Europe and um, US state laws in a generic holistic DPA that they attach to their agreements. So. With those four steps, businesses will be well positioned to start uh, complying with these new laws, and hopefully it won't be a cause for panic. Um, speaking about managing panic, there's a new federal privacy law that's being bandied about in Congress, and there's more uh, chatter about it than any other federal privacy bill that I've personally seen in years, the ADPPA. Ben, could you uh, chat a little bit about what's in this and how it compares to the state laws? Absolutely. Um, so that's right, Andy. We have the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. Um, I agree with you. Um, it appears to be the most serious effort um, in some number of years by uh, the federal government to pass a comprehensive consumer privacy law. Um, so, you know, in terms of comparing it to the other state laws that we've discussed, uh, it is more similar to the non-California state laws. It, it has more similarities to the framework for the Colorado, Virginia, Utah, and Connecticut style privacy laws. Um, there are some key differences um, and unique features of the ADPPA, um, one of which, again, to go back to thresholds, um, who's subject to this law? Uh, the ADPPA will be significantly broader than um, the existing state privacy laws that we've discussed. Um, the scope is drafted in such a way that almost everyone who is otherwise subject to federal law and collects uh, consumer data will be subject to it. Um, but then it delineates different requirements for small businesses uh, than for what are defined as large data holders. Um, a small business under the ADPPA will be a business that has less than $41 million in annual gross revenue, less than 200,000 individuals' information collected, uh, and there's a caveat there that that information would be collected for a purpose that goes beyond just completing a transaction as long as you delete that information within 90 days. So if all you are is an online retailer and you're selling goods uh, via your website, as long as that's the only purpose for which you're processing the personal information and you delete it within that 90-day period, that would not count as it's currently drafted towards that 200,000 threshold. Um, I would note that it's unclear based on how the statute is currently drafted whether that's an and or an or test, meaning you have to have both 
less than $41 million and less than 200,000 in, uh, individuals information, or if you need to have both um, in order to be uh, within this definition of a small business. Um, so if you're in that small business requirement, their small business definition, you are exempt from a number of the compliance requirements of the ADPPA. So they're, they're clearly interested in targeting larger businesses that collect a material volume of consumer uh, personal information. They are also, as I mentioned, specifically interested in what they define as large data holders. Um, the large data holders are $250 million annual gross revenue and 5 million or more individuals uh, information and 200,000 or more individuals sensitive information uh, with the scope of sensitive information, including a number of different categories, including uh, what you would classically think to be sensitive information like uh, government identifiers, account passwords and usernames um, and other sensitive types of data. Um, for those large data holders, there are extra levels of requirements. There are heightened disclosure requirements. There are additional specific compliance requirements um, that those companies would have to comply with. So, you know, that uh, uh, LDH, large data holder category, really makes it pretty clear that the um, drafters of the ADPPA are, are interested in putting a target on the big tech companies in the United States, um, you know, not the most popular businesses these days, right? <laughs> no, that's right, Andy. They're, uh, you know, they're they're getting it from left and right these days. Um, so I, I am sure that uh, there's some lobbying going on in the background um, from some of the, you know, larger players in Silicon Valley. Um, I would imagine that they're not terribly pleased with the uh, additional levels of scrutiny and levels of transparency. Um, frankly, that this law would subject them to. Um, so, uh, you know, that's what I see as, as, as kind of one of the major key differences um, under ADPPA with these other laws. Um, in, in terms of the suite of rights that individuals get, uh, it is very similar to the other state laws. You'll, you'll have a right to know, a right to delete, um, a right to opt out of a sales category. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, Andy. Um, I think that um, from an industry standpoint, there are significant advantages um, in looking at one uniform law across all 50 states uh, if the ADPPA were to go into effect. Um, so there, but yet the the uh, counter counterbalancing uh, interest there, looking at this particular law is if it were to go into effect uh, and and preempt, as it's currently drafted, the other state consumer privacy laws, um, it would give people a, a broader private right of action. Um, so it has a broader private right of action even than the California law, whereby individuals could uh, seek a remedy for a breach of the law. Um, so I, it, it's interesting um, to me to see how the industry, uh, the technology industry specifically, is reacting to this, um, I think that they're torn because I think that they want to have one um, common set of rules that they can live by instead of having a fragmented privacy landscape. You know, starting in 2023, they're going to have five different rules of the road in five different states. That's, you know, we only anticipate that 
growing, that number of states growing, they're going to have 10, they're going to have 15 different rules of the road, um, all with unique and slightly different aspects that they're going to need to comply with. It certainly seems to me to be um, advantageous from a compliance standpoint to only have one set of rules. But at the same time, you know, I think that they are, uh, that the businesses are, are pretty comfortable with this framework from Colorado, Virginia, Utah, and Connecticut that, as I said earlier, is, is, is obviously, I think, a little bit more business friendly, no private right of action, um, no express targeting of the big, um, you know, the big tech companies. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, you know, the big question, Andy, is do we think this thing is actually going to pass? Do we think this ADPPA is actually going to pass? Well, it really depends on how we uh, come out or how uh, the Congress comes out on the issues of preemption and the private right of action, which, as you as you said, are really the hottest two issues in this debate right now. So let's look at federal preemption. So you could have, uh, if there's no federal preemption in this, you could have the uh, worst of all possible worlds for businesses. You could have yet an additional new comprehensive privacy framework layered on top of the five existing ones and any new ones yet to pass at the state level, except that this new framework has a much broader private right of action than, uh, you know, that than California's uh, does. Right now, uh, the, the issue of federal preemption has caused this bill to be opposed by California Attorney General Rob Bonta as well as nine other state attorney generals. And as of the time of the recording of this podcast, uh, Representative Nancy Pelosi and Senator Patty Murray have also come out against the bill because of, uh, of the preemption issue. They're, they've said they're perfectly happy to pass a privacy bill that uh, includes the goals uh, in, this, uh, in this bill and the requirements, but it should be, as they put it, a floor, not a ceiling. It shouldn't prevent states from imposing more more rigorous requirements uh, and of course uh, the republicans are are against that so as of the time of this recording we're less than uh 60 days from the election more than a month and a half the window to pass something i would say is in the next uh 40 40 days 45 days give you know give or take or two a few I'd say six months ago, I was giving this thing a 50-50 um, chance of passing, but now I'm much more uh, pessimistic. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I'm um, I'm aligned with uh, your uh, your view of the situation, Andy. I I think um, we uh, saw a lot of momentum when this law uh, was introduced and when it was first being discussed at the federal level. Um, and after the vocal opposition that you mentioned from the attorney, state attorney generals um, and then from uh, current speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, specifically, you know, I, I don't see this law now passing in its current form. Uh, I think that they're going to have to compromise um, with these folks that have come out uh, taking a hard line on the preemption issue that specifically in California that they want the California law to survive, even if this law were to be passed. Um, and I agree with you, Andy, that, um, you know, that could result in what I think a lot of businesses would view as the worst case scenario, which is all you're doing is giving me yet another uh, rule of the road that doesn't make it a one size fits all. Instead, it's still 
you know, it's still a fragmented puzzle piece landscape and there's nothing stopping other states from adding their own puzzle pieces, in which case all that's going to happen is this is going to get increasingly more complicated. Um, so, you know, I, I hope um, that a, a revised version of this law might have a chance at, at passage in the next Congress. That would be my um, kind of prognostication here, that it's, they're going to go back to the drawing board a little bit. They're going to tweak this law to try to accommodate some of these folks' concerns. And then, you know, maybe we're going to see something that actually gets a vote um, in the next Congress. But it'll be really interesting to see um, how they come out on this preemption issue. Agreed. I think, uh, you know, I think unfortunately it's true that the cavalry is not coming this year. I agree, Andy. <laughs> well, that's about all the time we have for a cyber law monitor. I'm your host, Andy Bear. My guest has been Benjamin Mishkin. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Ben, thank you for being our guest. Thanks, Andy. Take care, and we'll be issuing new podcasts on cutting-edge issues in privacy and cyber law in the near future. Take care and be safe, everyone.